This is the Answer Your Unique Calling podcast. This is a podcast for change catalysts, those that believe we can change the world and that the way things are isn't the way they have to be. Through this podcast, I share tools, tips, and inspiring stories for breaking through limitations, creating meaningful change, and embracing and trusting in your deepest truth. I'm Julian Crossenhill, certified spiritual life coach, human design specialist, and founder of Priest of Unana. I help spiritually-minded professionals discover and embrace a life of possibility, freedom, meaning, and impact. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Answer Your Unique Calling podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill, and with me today is Ayo Yutunde. Pamela Ayo Yutunde is a pastoral counselor. She's the author of Casting Indra's Net, Fostering Spiritual Kinship and Community, co-editor of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom, and principal co-founder of Buddhist Justice Reporter. You can learn more about Io at www.pamelaioyatunde.com. Hello, Io, and welcome to the show. I'm so excited to, to have you here, and I'm so grateful that you chose to, to do this interview with me because I've read Casting Andrews Net, and it just was had so many ideas in it that I wanted to have this opportunity to chat. Thank you, Julian. I'm, I'm uh, honored that you invited me to be a part of your community. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Um, so for people who haven't read Casting Indra's Net, what sort of what would you say is sort of the central theme or idea that you were getting across with this book? Mm-hmm. In, in short, it is that we are interconnected and therefore our thoughts, our behaviors, our concerns, our plans, our unresolved grief, all of these things impact others in particular ways. And if we can remember that we are interconnected, we may also cultivate a certain ethical commitment towards one another for the well-being of all of us. So when one is not well and we are not well, when we are well, that holds the potential for the healing of others. Yeah, that's such a beautiful concept, and you do address it so well in the book. Um, You wrote this book during a lot of the unrest and division during the George Floyd protests and the pandemic and all of these things that were going on. Um, How did those sort of inspire you to create this this beautiful work? Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for saying it's beautiful, because I address some things that maybe aren't so beautiful. I honestly, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken to see how how we've turned against each other and how easily we can turn against one another. Heartbroken also about how quickly we move on from the harm that we do to one another. Almost as if certain things in history didn't even happen like the the millions of people who died COVID, 
didn't happen. The attack on the Capitol didn't happen. I mean, of course, we know these things happened, but we act as if they they did not. And so the unrest, you know, that's one way to put it, the violence towards one another. You know, I think about that and I think, what does that solve? What does that help us uh, arrive at? Where's the hope in that? What are we aspiring to? And if we don't address these issues, what are we likely to do? Perpetuate them? So just thinking about these things and thinking about my little, what what little, little infinitesimal thing can I contribute to the conversation with the hope that maybe us who care about others across our differences can begin to work with one another, uh, collaborate across our differences, not as a way of denying them or obliterating them, but seeing our differences perhaps as strengths and moving uh, together towards a more civil society, one that we can actually experience more joy in rather than more fear. Yeah, that's such a beautiful vision. And The book inspired me in a lot of ways because you talk about some really powerful things like sort of upgrading the golden rule to treating the person the way um, they need to be treated or looking at the potential that a person has and who they could be. Because, you know, as a coach, obviously, I'm always interested in the limitless potential that people have. And who do you want to be? Who who could you be? Um, And I think those were beautiful ideas in the book. And there's also this idea of sort of dialogue and, and and having that understanding and that compassion towards other people across these differences. And I think the part that was hard for me as I was reading it, and I'm really curious for your thoughts on is how do you how do you do that with someone who holds views that are different from yours that maybe you view as aberrant or, you know, such as racism or white supremacy or, you know, homophobia or some of these things that um, are creating a lot of division in our society right now. And the larger part of society sees them as fringe ideas that aren't socially acceptable, but there are those people that strongly hold them and, you know, can sometimes react violently as a result of them. So how do we sort of embrace those differences and have compassion for those people and and reach that understanding and civility with one another? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is uh, probably one of the most important questions people are asking themselves these days. I would say this, I have been inspired and encouraged by some Buddhist teachings Mm -hmm. uh, that remind us that uh, we're not that different than the people who we have aversion towards. Each one of us comes to our belief system through our own personal histories. That's true for everyone. And every every person has been exposed to a variety of causes and conditions raised by a certain uh, person or people in a certain city or town or country. And so we don't all come to the same conclusions. None of us, we can grow up in the same family, come from the same family of origin, right? And have completely different views on things. And that's amazing. So this is the case for all of us. So when we begin to recognize that, oh, that person must be 
completely different kind of person because they hold a belief that's different than my my own, we can try to put ourselves in their shoes, recognizing that they could have the same belief about us, right? That we are completely different kinds of people because we have different views. So we try not to demonize the person because of their beliefs and remember that they are still a person, regardless of their belief system or their opinions, they're still a person who thrives when they are respected, right? Mm -hmm. So we can respect the person, the body of the person. We can respect that they came to their beliefs through a particular journey uh, without having to agree. And And when we don't agree, that is not cause to try to eliminate the person. We just respectfully disagree. Sometimes, uh, Julian, I think about um, how it is that we can, people of different views, of opposing views, can um, share a plane ride together, right? (laughs) We are all, we need to remember that we're all trying to get to the same place, right? Sometimes we have to share the same vehicle to get there. And we know how to act when we have a shared interest and a shared vehicle. So we should try to remember these things. Mm, that's really powerful because I think, you know, there's a lot of division in, in particularly in the United States with the, politically the two parties and abortion, LGBTQ rights, mm-hmm. all these, you know, racism, all the, all the issues. And, but as a country, we're all trying to get to the same place. We want to be, be able to make a comfortable living, enjoy your mm-hmm. life with our families and our friends right. and all of these things. So that's, that's a beautiful vision of that. Um, how do you, so remembering that people, the respect for the person and the respect for the views and all of these things, um, how does, what does that look like when you're interacting with people who have views that differ from you? And because of that, they don't respect you. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I'm I'm not an advocate for being a doormat. Right? <laughs> so I I believe uh, self respect it is uh, connected to happiness. Right. Yeah. So if we respect ourselves, we've got a greater chance of feeling happiness and joy and confidence that we can be in relationship with people who who have different opinions. It is never. Hmm, I shouldn't say never. (laughs) I will put it this way. It is often advisable to let folks know when you feel disrespected. Yeah. And there are great teachings on how to do that. What's coming to my mind right now is Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm a fan. (laughs) Yeah, right. So right in NVC, the goal in NVC for people who don't know is to try to speak your truth without being judgmental and without blaming someone for what you feel. Yeah. Yeah. And then also respectfully making a request of that person. Yeah. And then making that request without the expectation that um, the request will be honored. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And sometimes it's so much easier said than done in practice yeah, because we do get, we do get heated in the moment and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But yeah, it, nonviolent communication is such a, a powerful tool and the removing the blame and the judgment is so important. Um, what about situations where your own safety might be a concern. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a queer man. I have a lot of trans friends, drag queens, and there's been a lot of violent rhetoric against them. And, um, you know, when they deal with someone who differs from their opinion, but there's the threat of violence there, like, so just disengaging, is that the best way to handle that? Obviously, you know, we want to stay safe, but we also want to still respect this other person and, and be civil to them. So is it just more about avoiding that situation? What What's, what's your advice there? Mm-hmm. Well, every situation is different. Yeah. And everyone who feels threatened has to make a decision. It is within our DNA, if you will, to be uh, concerned about our safety. And self-preservation is a very strong urge. Yeah. So if someone feels like their safety is threatened, like their physical safety, their emotional mm-hmm. safety is threatened, they have choices. They can remove themselves. Hopefully they can remove themselves from the yeah. situation or they may need to defend themselves in the situation. Yeah. Who's to say in that moment what that person should do? But I would say this, if a person feels vulnerable, they need to remove themselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Great. So you are a principal co-founder of the Buddhist Justice Reporter. And I don't want to like completely get off topic of your book because it it's really the got a lot of great ideas for for addressing these things. But you mentioned the Justice Reporter in the book. And so tell me a little bit about the work that that you're doing through the book through the Buddhist Justice Reporter. Right. Well, after George Floyd was tortured and murdered, yeah. actually before he was tortured and murdered, we were already in the, I don't know, at some point, not far from the shutdown from COVID. Yeah. And so I was feeling the loss of community, the loss of engagement, anger, all, all kinds of feelings. And then I was living in St. Paul, Minnesota at the time George Floyd was tortured and murdered and thinking, what now? What's next? What is the right response to this? And longer story short, some Buddhist practitioners, people of color got together and we realized that many of us were writers and that uh, Buddhist practitioners by and large in the United States are not really known to be the first to be activists and advocates uh, for human rights. So we decided that we would write about the varieties of of, um, human rights abuses, oppression, persecution in the United States, uh, focusing first on the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin, uh, the man who had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Uh, but we also wrote about other things as well. And we will continue to do do that because we believe that uh, at least Buddhist practitioners and maybe other people who are in contemplative communities 
who are thinking about how do I best respond can be encouraged uh, by our analysis and our um, witnessing, especially our witnessing, uh, to be witnesses, Mm -hmm. to uh, speak the truth, and to share um, compassion in this way. Because if we don't, if we don't witness for one another, especially those of us who've chosen to look away, mm-hmm. um, then maybe we are part of the problem and we decided that we didn't want to be a part of this problem. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, such important work to just shine a light on some of these things because sometimes there's things the mainstream media doesn't even really report them or we don't learn about them. And it's so important to get that perspective. Um, you mentioned activism. So I, I'm curious, when when a group or a community feels that their voices aren't being heard or that something needs to change, you know, there's often the protest movement and all of these different things. And you mentioned that the Buddhists in the U.S. tend not to be activists. Um, what role do you see activism playing in community? And how do you, as an activist, respect the people on the other side of the issue when you're advocating mm-hmm. for change in that way? Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 Julian, I'll begin by saying we do live in the United States. And fortunately, uh, for the time being, we do have rights under the First Amendment, you know, yeah. the right to free speech, the right to assemble, the right of a free press, the right to yeah. practice religion, the right to be free from the government establishing a, re- a religion. So we have all of these rights. It's important for us to exercise these rights. By exercising these rights, we inform one another. When we gather together uh, in our pain, that is an opportunity for those who are observing us to, um, to empathize. Yeah. Oh, I did not realize that this particular policy, this particular law um, caused this much pain on this many people. So yeah. this is part of the value of protesting. Um, but sometimes, depending on the issue, protesting is not enough. We have to advocate for legislative change. And yeah. um, there's a lot going on legislatively, as we know, as you just talked about, uh, the trans community um, that is uh, hurting people. Yeah, I mean, really hurting Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so my hope is that that pain will be witnessed to not only by the people who are feeling it, but, but people by people who care for other people, care about other people. There's no yeah. need to there's no need for this kind of legislation. Yes, I, I so agree. And I love the idea that activism, I mean, obviously, first of all, peaceful protest is really, you know, the the key here. Because um, you mentioned in the book, people tearing down monuments and things and that you mm-hmm. kind of didn't agree with that, um, the way that was being handled. Um, and so and, and we've seen some protests that have gotten unruly, have turned into violence rather than just a protest. Um and I'm curious about that as far as like, so peaceful protests, this idea of creating empathy in people who who view the protest and creating awareness. It seems like what you're saying through a lot of things is just really, it all comes back to that 
almost like that nonviolent communication idea that when we gather in a group and we protest a law or something that's unjust, we're creating that awareness. We're we're communicating how we're being in fact impacted by it without putting that blame and judgment out there, but creating that awareness. Would you agree that that's kind of the role? I would hope for that. I mean, I mean, we're people, right? So we should be thinking, I think wise, wise people, sorry, wise people tend to think what might be the consequences of my behavior. Yeah. Right. So for example, if I participate in tearing down a Confederate statue, what might I anticipate the response or reaction to be? Yeah. To doing that. Mm-hmm. And if I think it's going to be negative, then do I want to take the responsibility for uh, responding to that negative consequence? Do I want to contribute my energy to a cycle of tearing down things that mean something to other people? Yeah. When I when I have something up that means something to me, do I want people to retaliate for uh, for the behavior I enacted on their uh, sacred item, if you will, by tearing down my sacred item? Right? Where yeah. does that lead us? Yeah. It just escalates. It just becomes tit for tat, back and forth. Right. Yeah. And for what, right? The the, um, removal of the statue doesn't remove racism. It doesn't uh, erase history, nor does the erecting of a statue uh, make people love another person. So if, or a group of people, but if we were to work towards being neighbors with one another and towards one another. What are the symbols of our, uh, I'll put it this way, old language, of our brotherly love? Yeah. Right? Call calling on Philadelphia, Philly. Um, what would be the symbols of our love towards each other as kin that we could co-create together? Yeah, yeah. That's that totally shifts the whole conversation when you start to think about it. And it comes back to what you said earlier about realizing that, you know, we're all in the same vehicle. We're all trying to get to the same place. So it's really about focusing on where is it we're trying to go together mm-hmm. and who are we trying to be as a as a collective? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that really shifts the energy of of everything so much. Mm-hmm. Um and I love in the book, you know, you talk about being responsible and, and really thinking about the consequences of your actions and, and, and your words as well. And in the book, you have this great analogy of it. You tell this story about a, a wreath of flowers versus a wreath of fingers. Um, and I really liked that visual because it's, you know, it's a little gory thinking about building this wreath of fingers, but it does make you stop and think when you take an action, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. What am I adding to you know, the, the energy or the karma of what, of who I am, what am I, what is this action, the reaction or consequence of what I'm doing? Um, I really appreciated that because it does make you think a little more. You know, that's interesting. You brought that up. I I know your viewers can't see the fact that you're wearing a shirt of flowers, (laughs) but, (laughs) um, but yeah, just, I've yet to see 
anyone uh, wearing a wreath of flowers and, 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 and it being an unpleasant, not you know, truly unpleasant experience. Um, but we do need to think about what is this self that I'm creating, this identity that I'm creating by counting the number of people I've hurt. Yeah. Right. Th that really makes me a tough person. Right. Because I've hurt so many people. Wow. Right. wow. Yeah. 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 And you about? use the word narcissism a lot in the book mm -hmm. to sort of yes. describe that, like that sort of disconnection from the impact that you have on people. Right. And, but another reason why I use the word narcissism, narcissism a lot in this book is because it's been on such display. Yeah. Not only has it been on such display, but people, because we mimic, that's part of our nature is to mimic. We have people who are mimicking narcissists, even if they, in their heart of hearts or in their personality structure, they're not actually a narcissist. But what they can see if they're paying attention is how some people are attracted to a narcissistic personality and can gain power as the result of that attraction. Yeah. And so people say, well, why don't I try that? Well, absolutely. And I think in society, we teach people to mimic that because, you know, it's part of that toxic masculinity that we have. Because when I was growing up, I was a very sensitive and, you know, caring child. And I got I got crap from my father all the time about how I needed to be more assertive. I needed to be more aggressive. Like I was too feminine and all of these things. And it was, and you know, there was a period in my life where I tried to emulate my father, who's very narcissistic and, mm -hmm. and I, and I did hurt people by doing that. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it wasn't who I was, at, you know, at my core essence. And that's really, you know, a lot of what my work is about is when we, our kids, we're, we're magical beings because we know who we are and we act from that. And then everyone else tells us, don't be like that, be like this, do it this way. And we right. lose our magic a little mm -hmm. bit. And we so, get, so I just, I want to help everyone find their magic again. Yeah. So. I'm glad that I'm glad you, I'm glad. I'm so glad Julian, that you are doing that. Um, and I hope that people will allow themselves to, to let you support them finding that because that can be a scary thing, right? Yes. We've, we've also come to not believe ourselves, not believe that we have magic or to doubt it or to fear it. And yeah. it takes time to reacquaint with that. Yeah, it does. It, it takes, it takes time to, to trust it again and to believe mm -hmm. in it. And, you know, it, it's funny because the whole idea of hurting people and sort of glorifying that is you know, in business, we call that being assertive or being aggressive, or we talk, or even in some, some people call it being a good leader. You know, I don't. And I think, I think that that trend is starting to change. Thank God. Um, mm. But, but we do, we, we put a lot of emphasis on that and, you know, that makes you tough. That makes you assertive. It makes you masculine. It makes you an alpha male, all of these things that, you know, we put on that mm. and it's all for what, <laughs> So, yeah, maybe back to that uh, impulse for survival. Yeah, we think we, we we think we won't survive unless we believe that the world is out to get us. So we have to armor ourselves, like puff ourselves up and let the world know, no, you cannot mess with me. 
right? Yeah. I got similar messages as a black person, right? In the United States, you can't trust white people. So you need to, if somebody hurts you, go back at them twofold to let them know who's boss, right? There's so many messages we get um, about who the enemy is. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. Yeah, it is sad. And and often the enemy is ourselves. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So it, I, I like that the book also, like, you know, I picked up the book originally because it said fostering spiritual kinship and community. And I think community is such an important concept because that whole survival thing, we weren't designed to survive on our own. We're designed to survive as a part of a group. And it's really about finding you know, I always tell my my business clients, um, you know, find your people because those are the people that are going to resonate with what you're saying. Those are the people that are going to resonate with who you are and are going to want what you're offering. Um, and I think that that applies for everyone, even if you're not in business, find your people because there are people who resonate with who you are and hopefully the right people, when you find your people, you'll all inspire the best in each other. And that's really the, you know, to me, that's what spiritual community is about, is finding those people that bring out the best in you and inspire you to think more about your actions and about who you might be hurting and building that wreath of, of flowers that you mm -hmm. describe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Julian? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, I told you I was going to try to learn some things too, right? So... That's, it's a complex thing. It seems finding your people, like on one level, I hear what you're saying in terms of leadership and getting things done, but is it, would it be possible for someone who's similarly situated, who has the responsibilities of leadership to consider everyone as their people, but who they're going to focus on are people who want to take the responsibility of moving something forward. Is that, is that possible or is that too idealistic? No, I think that's possible. I mean, when I was a, a software engineering leader, I felt like the team that I had under me was like that, um, you know, and I've led some different events and large gatherings. And I think that it is about, um, the people that want to move things together. It's really about that shared vision, right? Who do we want to be and where are we going? And about finding the people that want not only to get there, to share that vision, but are willing to roll up their sleeves and do what's necessary to, to do that. Mm -hmm. That's what you're defining as my people. Yeah. 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 People okay, who, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The people, the people who, people who have that, that same vision and idea of the destination who resonate with you, um, you know, and obviously not to say that people who disagree with me aren't my people. Cause I do have people in my circuit that I don't, that I don't agree with a hundred percent or even 20%, but they can still be my people because they still have, they still, we still share a similar vision. And we're still kind of going in the same direction, even if we kind of view how we're getting there a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would love to expand that definition of my people. You know, I would love to include less and more people in that. I think sometimes it's challenging in our very divided sort of, you know, particularly in the U.S., very divided um, mm -hmm. situation. And I would love to 
I would love to include people who, you know, spiritual people who are evangelical, but often their beliefs are, you know, they're not willing to consider that because their beliefs hold them back from seeing me for who I am. They only Mm -hmm. see aspects of who I am. Um, But you know what, what people think about us doesn't preclude us from adopting them. And that's one of the points that I'm trying to make in Casting Injures Net is that at least in our imagination, we can adopt people. And I saw what I thought was a beautiful display of this. Cornell West, Professor Cornell West, who, if people know anything about him, they know how uh, politically progressive he is. I heard him in a speech, in a conversation, and he would often refer to his brother, Donald Trump. My brother, Donald Trump. Wow. Yeah. So that is because of Cornell West's Christian belief system that we are all related. Even if you don't see me as related to you, I can still see you as related to me. And I'm going to treat you with the respect you deserve, even though I'm going to oppose your policies and I'm going to speak the truth when you don't speak it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a powerful idea. And I I love that. And I'm going to start trying to do that myself. (laughs) So see, I've learned something new in this conversation. So, um, and I'm glad for, I'm glad for this conversation because I, like I said, I read the book and some of the ideas are challenging because it's not how we normally are in our society. It's not how we're taught to be. So it is challenging to think about how can I be how can I be that bigger person and how can I feel connected to people who are radically different from me, who don't see me, who don't share my beliefs, who maybe don't even have the same vision of where we're all going. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's a challenging idea. Yeah. Well, it is, it is, it's work. It is work. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is work. And, and, and I think that if you're doing spirituality at all, you know, all of it is work. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe this work is worth it. We may not know, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, I may not make it to the mountaintop with you. Yeah. We may not make it to the mountaintop together, but my joy will come from feeling like we are going in the right direction. Yeah. That's profound. Yeah, that's a great, that's a really wonderful thought and um, very profound. And yeah, feeling like we're going in the same direction. That's, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Um, Wow. Um, So you mentioned, you mentioned it being work. And if someone is, you know, they've just read the book, they've read the ideas, and and there's a lot in there. There's there's a lot of ideas in the book. What would you say? Like where where do you start mm-hmm. to sort of adopt this more ex- expansive view of our shared humanity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we all will have the same starting place. I don't think that's possible. Okay, 
I, but what comes to my mind is uh, a phrase from uh, the Tibetan Buddhist nun Pema Chodron. Start where you are. Mm. Now that start where you are, four words. It sounds so simple. But <laughs> then the question I, I have is, well, where am I? Right. How How can I know where to start if I don't even know where I am and don't know who I am? Mm-hmm. So it it may take a while to get going, right? But it's, I think those four words, start where you are, is an invitation to accept, radically accept who you are and where you are. Just well, even if you don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah. just accept the not knowing. I don't know. But what I do know is I have a yearning, right? I bet most of us have some kind of yearning. Is it the yearning to to be in the pursuit of happiness and freedom and liberty? Is that the is that the yearning? Is it the yearning to uh, to be seen for who we are as human beings and not uh, based on our characteristics? A distortion. Is it to be heard? Is it to have our pain understood? What is that thing that keeps coming up for you? Keeps coming up for us that gets caught in our throats, right? Gets caught because we also suppress it. We have yeah. the the habit of suppressing that thing because something in our past may have said it's not worth speaking about. I've been uh, dismissed so many times about this. It's not worth it. Well, let it out. Let it. Let that be the starting place. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And and I've definitely learned, you know, you said four four words and it seems it sounds so simple. I've definitely learned like when Buddha says something, it's never as simple as it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) True. Um, Yeah. um, This conversation has really like for me has opened up a lot of ideas and I'm sure for my listeners, it has opened up a lot of thinking about how how we how we sort of move through life how we see our shared humanity with each other and how we sometimes unintentionally hurt other people um or maybe it is intentionally intentionally but we don't notice or we don't care enough about that and i think that that's such a powerful idea to start thinking about how can we reverse that and be more intentional about empathy and more intentional about connection and seeing that shared humanity, which of course is the metaphor of Indra's net that the, that the comes in the book title of, you know, these jewels all sort of woven into this beautiful net, um, which is really what we are as, as humans. Um, as we sort of come to the end of our time together and start winding our conversation down, what, what sort of, parting wisdom would you have to listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you or the book or are just sort of starting to think about these things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know each other. <laughs> so what can I say that would be as simple as, as possible, maybe in four words? <laughs> uh, <laughs> One sense that doesn't need to be unpacked. I would say this, trust 
your lived experience of the people, you know, in your neighborhood. Let's just start there. Start local. I'm concerned about the messages that we receive in the media about who other people are. Yeah. Right. So much, I think, of what we believe about another is based on what advertisers say, what fiction, fictional shows say, what news gets reported. And it's good to be informed, but not to have our nervous systems jacked up around it. Yeah. Which so much of our, our news is around getting you to believe what they're saying rather than these are just the facts. This is what happened. So how can we wean ourselves from those ways of receiving information? And that includes social media too. Yeah. And get, get back in, in our bodies, in our minds, hearts, and bodies and connect one-to-one with our neighbors so that we can begin to feel what it's like to be with real human beings again and to empathize. Because what I'm seeing is there's a movement afoot to get us to not empathize with each other's pain. Yeah. It's very dangerous. So let's just get, let's, okay, post-COVID, let's commit to re-engaging with one another so that we can get to know ourselves and each other better. I think that's fantastic. And I'm glad you mentioned social media because I have some friends who spend a lot of time on social media and it's such a, a feedback loop of your of your bias, you know? Um, and it's so I've got friends who are, are liberal, progressive people who just spew a lot of hate about the other side because that's what's getting reinforced to them all the time. They're so bad. They want to do all these terrible things and they don't even recognize that they've sort of turned into what they're railing against, mm. <laughs> and which is kind yeah. of ironic. Yeah, but I'm I'm glad that you also mentioned starting locally and and engaging with your neighbors because you know neighbors can mean lots of things but you know I live in a neighborhood where I don't even know if I know very many of my neighbors and I know a lot of people are similar you know we spend so much time on social media online um that we're not getting out and building those local communities anymore. And I do think that that is something that really precious that we have lost mm -hmm. with the digitalization of everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But we can regain little, you know, just little by little. So I, I make it a point, I make it a point to say hello to my neighbors who are walking dogs and, you know, babies in their, in their carriages and so on. And just a hello, good morning. It's just a way of just being human with one another that doesn't require any more than that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's and and sometimes that's just a simple hello can brighten someone's day because, mm -hmm. you know, you don't know what their lived experience has been. You don't know what they're going through. And sometimes just seeing them and saying hello can really change things for someone. Right. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, I really just want to thank you again for for coming on and taking this time to to talk with me um, about your book and about the the Buddhist Justice Reporter and all of the things that you're doing because I think that this is really important work, really important work that could potentially change the way we as a country approach our politics, our lives, everything. Um, and it feels to me like the solution to the division, you know, everybody's talking about how divided we are and what do we do? What do we do? And this feels like a solution to me. Um, so how do people, you know, you've got a couple of websites that, that you mentioned in your intro, which I will also link in the podcast description. Are, are those the best ways for people to get in touch with you or follow your work? That those are the best ways. Okay, great. Yeah. And of course, there's your books. So definitely <laughs> get out there and, and get the book. <laughs> yeah. Julian, thank you so much for uh, for what you're doing, helping people re-engage with the magic that is innate to who they are. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. And thank you for inviting me to be a part of your your community today. Yes. Thank you for 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 accepting the invitation. Mm, you're welcome. This has been the Answer Your Unique Calling podcast with spiritual life coach, Julian Crossenhill. Help others discover this podcast by leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Did this episode speak to you? Is there something you'd like to hear more about? Have a suggestion for a guest you'd like to hear? DM me on social media or use the contact page on my website to let me know. www.priestofanana.com That's Priest of Anana. I-N-A-N-N-A dot com. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Priest of Inanna. And don't forget to check out the Soul Expansion Soundboard live every other Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn. 